This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Madonna there, Girl Gone Wild. Thanks to Joe for doing Burning Vinyl. Great program, four hours of live broadcasting. Talk about stamina and endurance, but it was a great show. You're on In Your Face Now with James. I'm here till five o'clock, and I've got two fantastic guests kicking off in about five minutes' time with Nick Hollis. He's one of the most prominent living with HIV activists in the country. He's going to the International HIV AIDS Conference in Amsterdam next month, and he'll be talking to me about You Equals You, which has been an amazingly successful campaign, and also his Institute of Many, which he co-established. Plus, of course, what's happening at the conference. And at 4.35, I'll be talking to Vet LGBTIQ liberationist and activist Alison Thorne. She's running a forum for the anniversary of Stonewall on the 23rd of June, and it's about the future of LGBTIQ activism after the yes vote here in Australia. So lots to look forward to. She's been an activist for probably... 40 years, 39 years in fact, since 1979. So she's got an amazing wealth of, of information and experience to learn from. Alrighty, uh, here's Placebo doing a cover for us. It's uh, a bit of Daddy Cool.
Placebo, Daddy Cool, it's 8 after 4, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm joined by Nick Hollis, who's off to Amsterdam. Welcome, Nick. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. You're off to the International HIV AIDS Conference. Uh, you're a very prominent activist. You're probably the most prominent HIV AIDS activist in the country, oh, I would say. that's so kind of you. You're up there. You. Uh, you I know, do- shut me up, right? That's what I like to say these days. <laughs> you're doing a poster presentation in Amsterdam about the uh, Institute of Many, which mm-hmm. you founded. Tell us the backstory to that. What is the Institute of Many and why did you co-create it? Uh, the Institute of Many, or TIM as we like to call yeah. it for short, um, is a grassroots movement for people living with HIV. Uh, we are now in our sixth year of operating, which I cannot believe, uh, because it all started from a really organic, tiny little place where myself and Jeff Lang, the other co-founder who now lives back in the United States, we met at a weekend workshop for newly diagnosed HIV positive people. Um, and we were both doing pretty okay with it, I have to say. We were, we were both 30 years old at the time. Uh, we'd only been living or diagnosed with HIV about three weeks um, prior to that workshop. Uh, and we were, we were kind of on top of things. But Around the room, we saw people who were in the same place we were, and then we, we also saw people who were really not dealing with their diagnoses. Some of them had not been on a date or had sex for two years. It had taken them two years to get to this newly diagnosed workshop to, to get the confidence to work through the door. And we really, uh, in that moment, crystallized that uh, we... Uh, might be doing well with our diagnoses, but the fact that we look around and see others who weren't meant that uh, we were in an extraordinary place of privilege and we had to do something with that privilege. So we started Tim. So is it about peer support or is it more than that? Uh, it, uh, you know, it started as purely as a peer support mechanism. So um, all the activity on Tim happens online. We have a, a, not all the activity, but a lot of it happens online on our, our private Facebook community. And that's where people living with HIV can come, ask questions, get support. And that works really well. It's like a digital drop-in centre. We've got some people who are there every day asking a question, joining the conversation, people who come in and out depending on you know what's happening in their lives. Uh, and once we started to do that community organising, you know, it'll come as no surprise to your listeners that when you get a group of people together enough with a shared interest or a shared experience that you, know, you start to hear from more people about their opinions, about the, what they want. And we noticed that there was a, a bit of a gap in um, uh, visible representation at a real grassroots level. And so we've been able to translate Tim into an activist platform where we've right. been able to um, influence change and, and try and, and work with the pre-existing HIV and AIDS organisations who do a really fantastic and important job and that's what they're funded to do. So you're breaking down isolation on two levels by being online, aren't you? You're breaking down that geographic isolation and that kind of psychological isolation as well. So I imagine that gives you more impetus and creates more diversity. So there's more power within that, isn't there? More empowerment. Absolutely. I mean, there's the, the, the notion of peer support is nothing new. We certainly didn't invent that. But we came around at just the perfect time where the HIV and AIDS sector in this country had been around for decades uh, and that I think people were looking for a new way to connect because up until that point, you really had to go to the positive living centre. You had to go to a workshop, and I called it the circle of chairs model of support. You yeah. all sit around your circle of chairs. There's the tissues, there's the cup of tea. Those spaces are really, really important. It's really vital we keep those spaces. But people need more. People need more, and some people need different. For some people, the notion of walking into a, I call it a bricks and mortality um, setup. Uh, to talk about HIV and AIDS is so beyond their experience. Look at you know mm. newly, newly diagnosed people who are younger than the AIDS crisis. They have no memory and understanding of that time. 
uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as they learn their history. But, but you don't, don't want to create more anxiety, do you? Which no. sometimes travelling all the way to Melbourne or from the suburbs Absolutely. can actually do. And we have regional members. We have members from all over the world. We've got members from, I think, uh, 17 different countries or something like that in Tim now. Wow. And, that's, and it's also been really fantastic because, you know, here in Melbourne, down, uh, up there in Sydney, People living with HIV have got it pretty good comparatively. But, you know, just a stone's throw in Adelaide and Brisbane alone, uh, in, in capital cities, uh, mm. it can be a really, it can be super isolating, let alone uh, regional areas. So it's a great or way. Overseas, to, or overseas, like yeah, Barbados uh, or somewhere like that. Totally. So it's really great to bring people together. The downside of that is that it's a digital drop-in centre that's open 24 hours a day. So there's no shutting the door at the end of the night and saying, all right, come back tomorrow for your cup of tea and a chat, Dal. So people can get in there anytime. So, you know, it presents some really interesting challenges in terms of how you moderate a space like that. Well, it's not surprising then you're going to Amsterdam to talk about that because the conference theme is uh, building bridges, breaking barriers. Mm. What does that actually mean? <laughs> I don't know. I like to borrow more of Finucane's phrase when I say we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. Um, because, <laughs> but uh, look, I don't know. I haven't quite thought about the conference theme, to be completely honest, but really we're at a very interesting time in the global HIV response now. Well, with PrEP especially. Uh, yeah, PrEP's been a really big game changer in some parts of the world. And then it's also important to remember that there are places who are, you know, 15, 20 years behind us in terms of treatment access. Um, you know, we still lose around 1 million people a year to AIDS-related deaths. That's Those, those deaths are, have been since 1996 completely preventable, and yet they persist. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, You've been working on U equals U. You're talking at the pre-conference in Amsterdam about that. First Mm -hmm. of all, just recap what U equals U actually is. Yeah, sure. It's been a greatly successful campaign. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, well, for those of you out there who haven't heard about it, U equals U stands for undetectable equals untransmittable. And that means that a person living with HIV, like myself, who has an undetectable viral load, so I take my... my, uh, my HIV drugs every day, uh, that will give me an undetectable viral load, which means the virus, the level of virus in my blood is undetectable um, by um, standard measures. There's no transmission risk. So that means that there is zero risk of transmission. And I can't begin to tell you what a revolutionary concept that is to be able to talk about. Because we've known for quite a long time, for for a few years really, that uh, that was the case. But we never had the ability to say with definitive proof there is zero risk. And so it's like some- the HIV pill, if you like. It's a lot like that. Well, perhaps probably a little bit more like the HIV pill in mm. that for people who are HIV negative, they take their pill every day to prevent them from acquiring HIV. A lot like uh, women and other people with uteruses take uh, the pill to prevent from getting pregnant. Uh, the I guess there's not really a, a, a comparable <laughs> um, pregnancy metaphor with uh, HIV treatment. <laughs> but it's that feeling of liberation and the breaking down of barriers. And also, I imagine, just um, it would give people a great confidence boost to be able to disclose. What are people with HIV telling you about the impacts of U equals U on, uh, on disclosure? Uh, it's it's having a huge impact. We want it to go even bigger. There's still so much more work to to go, but uh, when when a person living with HIV 
not only uh, seize that information when they understand what U equals U means, but when they start to believe it, that's when we know it's working. So we can give people living with HIV and people at risk of HIV, and this is the really important thing, it's, it can't just be people living with HIV who believe in U equals U. Uh, it's got to be our uh, prospective partners as well. Um, but when you see people accept the science, uh, and you see how it liberates them and changes their lives. It's really great. But I've got to tell you, it's for a lot of people, it's a big stumbling block. For, for those of us who grew up under the specter of the AIDS crisis or lived through and survived the AIDS crisis, uh, no one subjected to the Grim Reaper advertising campaign, yeah. which did so much damage. Did a, did, did a little bit of uh, stigmatizing work there. Um, uh, it's really hard to uh, accept the science and fold it into your, into your life and into your beliefs when we've, uh, when we've lived through something like this. So U equals U has made negotiating sex easier uh, for some people and probably not for others because of that psychological impact, yeah? Yeah, it's going to take, it's going to take some time uh, for some people. Uh, but, you know, we're also seeing a um, uh, much greater belief in acceptance in it, um, especially from people living with HIV to begin with, and then that's having a, a ricochet effect. I've got to say PrEP has been really, really useful in bridging that zero divide between POS and NEG people uh, because people on PrEP are starting to uh, develop that confidence and, and sense of protection from within themselves. And I guess, you know, you've really incorporated that that fact that you have to have HIV negative and HIV positive people involved in safe sex campaigns. And, uh, you know, during the early days of the epidemic, that didn't happen that often. Yeah, it was, it was very much divided. And we can see that in the way that the HIV sector around Australia has been established. You've got, in most states, you've got your AIDS council, and their job used to be to prevent people from acquiring HIV. And then you've got your people living with HIV organisations, and their job was to support those who were living with AIDS and then uh, living with HIV. Um, and these days, of course, it's such a blurred world because, you know, the... The treatment I take to keep myself alive as a person living with HIV is also the treatment I take to protect my partners. And now you've got you know similar things happening around in the prep space. So it's a it's a really exciting time, but it's one we need to keep um, in check and also always keep um, you know an eye on history and remembering because it's easy for the um, for the horse to get before the cart. Sometimes I think absolutely cart get before the horse. <laughs> Are POS people telling you they're experiencing less sexual rejection because of all these advances that have happened? Um, I, I probably couldn't say wholesale that that's absolutely happening. I think in certain pockets, uh, especially urban parts of Australia, absolutely. We're seeing um, more progressive attitudes uh, when it comes to uh, choosing people living with HIV as a, as a partner. Uh, but, you know, uh, we, we are nowhere near um, finished in dismantling stigma and discrimination where we've got a lot more work to do. Is that the biggest mental health issue for for POS people, the fact that, that stigma creates uh, depression, it creates anxiety, and then it kind of results in that social exclusion kind of whirlwind that happens? Yeah, I think, and, and what's really important to remember and that sort of stuff is, you know, the PLHIV, people living with HIV community in Australia is a lot more diverse uh, than people might expect. It's It's uh, been categorised as such a gay and bisexual male crisis for so long that people forget that we have women living with HIV, we have heterosexual people living with HIV who are male and female, we have um, uh, uh, you know a significant portion of migrant communities um, living with HIV, and we also have um, a lot of uh, gay and bisexual men who are born uh, overseas. 
who are making up um, a lot higher uh, rates of newly diagnosed people with HIV. So it's it's a, still a complex community, um, and they all have different needs and different requirements. So it's really easy for us to uh, think and talk about sexual rejection as being a big part of something, um, and that's across the board. But uh, then there's a whole bunch of other complex community needs around culturally and linguistically diverse communities, what that means to come out as, as HIV positive in those communities. And getting tested as well. Like if you're from a refugee background, don't speak English, uh, possibly HIV is not going to be on your list of priorities, and so you may not be tested. Um, quite possibly. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, but it varies, doesn't it? Depending. Yeah, absolutely. Asylum seekers are a great example of those. Those communities are forcibly tested for HIV. Really? Yeah, that's not really something that um, a lot of people know about. So uh, the guys on Manus have been forcibly tested potentially. Been, uh, potentially, yeah, absolutely. Right. And we don't know. We don't know whether or not uh, people on Manus and are living with HIV. We haven't got that information, um, but we do know that people are forcibly tested for HIV and TB. Uh, so if someone is a refugee and they're in a detention centre like onshore, mm-hmm. they'll definitely be tested for HIV. Yep, they won't necessarily be sequestered though. Right. Um, so that's a pro- that's a massive. It's more of a problem, obviously, for TB, where if someone yeah. tests posit- is TB positive, that individual needs to be um, sequestered yeah. and they need to be um, isolated for the benefit of the community and and to be treated, obviously, not to just you know put somewhere and forgotten about. So if um, a refugee tests HIV positive. And they're in a detention centre. That's going to impact on their their case potentially. I mean, is it going to mean that they're they're not going to get residency or they're not going to get a visa? Um, I can't speak uh, specifically f- on behalf of uh, the refugee movement in this uh, particular issue, but I do know that um, uh, living with HIV presents a massive barrier for migration in general into this country. Um, and that, that's across uh, getting uh, work visas, uh, uh, sorry, permanent, re- when it comes to permanent residency in this country, uh, getting e- even a partner visa is really? incredibly complicated if one of partner is, is HIV positive. What happens if, say, you're a same-sex couple, for example, and you got married and one partner's from Canada and they're positive and you're married and you're bringing the partner to Australia, what would happen then? Uh, if that partner then wanted permanent residency and access to treatment over here, it would still be a significant barrier. In fact, if you come from Canada, in some instances, as I I understand it. I haven't gone through this process myself. This is coming from from within the community. Um, uh, the Australian government, I believe, has argued uh, in some instances that why don't you move to Canada? They've got a great healthcare system. Like this, there's, there's no reason for you not to be living as a couple over there in Canada, where you can have your HIV taken care of. So it's a it's it's there's still an extraordinary level of discrimination in place around migration with this country, which will come as no surprise to your listeners. And scary if there's two HIV positive people, you know, and one's Australian and one's, say, from, you know, a country like Canada, then potentially it's going both ways, that yep. discrimination. Quite possibly. I'm not quite sure what, how, uh, where Canada's at with that sort of stuff, but our borders are becoming, uh, uh, have been for a very long time, closed off and cold hearted. Nicholas, it's great chatting with you. We'll have to talk to you again when you get back from Amsterdam. You must be excited about going. Oh, I can't wait. I've never been to Amsterdam, so I'm really? so looking forward well, to it. Well, I have many times and I love it and I'm <laughs> sure you will too. Will I come back alive is the question. <laughs> Talking to Nicholas from the Institute of Many. He's off to Amsterdam for the International HIV AIDS Conference in July. It's 23 after 4. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James and here are the vines. <laughs>
for your mic. 3CR Radiothon 2018, fight for your mic. The sound of the weapon called a microphone. Bring the revolution on. Broadcasting to the early morning. June 4th to the 17th. Fight for your mic. Rebel music on the dance floor. Tell me what you're fighting for because this DJ gonna keep you alive. Forget about your troubles and your nine to five with the rhythm of the pump, the pump, the pump. The CR needs you. Fight for your mic and donate to 3CR's annual Radiothon. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. Call 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au. Yes, indeed, it's Radiothon. And next week's our Radiothon show here on In Your Face on 3CR. We'll be having awesome guests and quite a few of them who have featured on the program after the last over the last 12 months. So please tune in. And please donate, like a few people have already. We've got a Give Now page, an In Your Face on 3CR Give Now page. If you want to donate, 94198377, or you can do it online at 3cr.org.au. Uh, but we'll be hassling you for money next week with our awesome guests. Uh, really looking forward to it. All right, it's 27 after 4. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. And uh, Yvette's away this week, but this is a track for her.
night for long term detained refugees sunday 17 june from 10 am this event is organized to show solidarity and support for refugees detained long term by the australian government so come ride your bike or join us at the gathering spots from 10 am at kobeck town hall 11 o'clock at princess park 12 o'clock at Melbourne Museum or 2 o'clock at Albert Park. You can also look up online at rideforrefugees2018.wordpress.com. Ride for Refugees is a 3CR supporter. Yarra City Council presents the 6th annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2018, celebrating live music in Yarra, featuring the likes of Black Scott in Go Gaga at the Gasometer, Penny Eichinger at the Yarra Hotel, Queer in the Pitch with Mama Alto at Hairs and Hyenas, a hip-hop music showcase Girls to the Front at the Laundry and much much more. 10 days in July with over 30 events at venues across the city of Yarra. For more information and tickets, go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. The Sounds of Winter, a 3CR supporter. When I was your girl, I didn't know that I would end where you begin. More beautiful in your skin No matter of regret This loosening curl Teasing you out When I was your girl In my room You said we'll stay here for an endless year Close the door, we're letting no one near When I was your girl When I was your girl And then today
Nelson Moye there. When I was your girl, it's 2525 in your face on 3CR. With James, got a very special guest in the studio. Alison Thorne is a veteran LGBTIQ liberationist and activist. She's a founding member of Radical Women in Melbourne and the managing editor of the Freedom Socialist Organiser. She'll be chairing the forum Reviving the Spirit of Stonewall in Australia and around the globe to commemorate Stonewall's anniversary later in June. Welcome to In Your Face, Alison. It's great to be here, James. Thank you so much. Uh, How would you define an LGBTIQ liberationist? That is a wonderful question because when I first got involved in the gay liberation movement in the late 70s, Pretty much all the activists at that time considered themselves liberationists. And uh, what we meant by liberation was upending a society which was based on homophobia, based on transphobia, sexism, racism. We meant liberating every aspect of ourselves. We meant going beyond... Um, the gender binary. We meant uh, challenging the ideas of monogamy and the patriarchal institution of the family. And marriage. And marriage and marriage. And, um, like, it's interesting because our forum that we're hosting to celebrate Stonewall is actually called After Yes. And um, we will be framing our um, discussion in the whole context of the long battle for marriage equality. And the two organisations that are hosting the event, Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party, we have a very um, dialectical approach to this whole question of marriage. We were involved in um, some of the helping organise some of the earliest uh, marriage equality rallies after um, the Howard government imposed its um, same-sex marriage ban. And like people asked us, hey, you're socialist feminists, you're LGBTIQ liberationists. What are you doing supporting an institution um, like marriage? And what did you say? And what we said is we said that we support same-sex marriage equality because it will have the same kind of impact that things like uh, no-fault divorce laws, women um, entering the workforce en masse, it would have the same impact that those things had on marriage. And by chipping away at that patriarchal, heterosexist institution that we'd help um, turn marriage into its opposite and you know like that's very much what we're hoping to see the forum of course is is celebrating if you like the stonewall anniversary it's commemorating that Mm -hmm. tell us what happened at stonewall on that fateful night in new york city in 1969 okay well that fateful night like in many ways it was little different um to you know the weekend before and the weekend before that, what we actually had was we had um, a very homophobic police force. We had um, bar owners who were in it for the profit rather than um, the love of community. And we had people um, 
who were out wanting to have a good time. Butch Dykes, drag queens of colour, working class people, socialising at the Stonewall Inn and just wanting to have a good time. And what they got was yet, yet another police raid. But this time the patrons snapped. They'd had enough and they fought back. And really the whole story um, of Stonewall is a legendary one, but I think it is important not to see the Stonewall riots as a single event. The Stonewall riots were part of the context of the time. They were part of the 60s. And in fact, there were earlier instances where um, LGBTIQ people fought back um, against harassment in bars that are are less known. An interesting one um, took place in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco at um, the Compton's Diner. And it was a diner um, run by Jean Compton and it was um, frequented um, by many um, gender diverse people and young queers, I guess using 21st century terminology they'd have obviously used different terms back then Um, and there was a a riot at the Compton's Diner three years before the Stonewall riot and what happened at Stonewall what happened at Compton's was in the context of a civil rights movement it was in the context of a movement uh, fighting um, against the imperialist war in Vietnam and it was in the context of a women's liberation movement. And so the LGBTIQ people were not operating in a, a vacuum. They were, like, influenced, um, you know, by what was happening around them at the time. And that very much um, fuel the events at Stonewall. But what was important about the events at Stonewall was that they sparked the imagination, that they sparked resistance and uh, very quickly gay lib emerged, first in New York, then on the west coast of the US, um, then here um, in Australia. And uh, culminating, of course, in 1978 with uh, with Mardi Gras and, and, and then the impetus that that um, gave the community as well. And, of course, that was a riot too. Exactly, exactly. And um, one of the things that our event that we're, we're also doing, we're not only paying tribute to people like um, Martha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and those who led the fight back at Stonewall, but we're also paying tribute to our very own 78ers. And wasn't it inspiring um, to see the 78ers marching in Mardi Gras this year and so many of the amazing interviews that was that were done by those veteran members of our community hearken back to that very spirit of liberation which we're wanting to inspire with our Stonewall celebration. So in 2018, is the LGBTI community at an activism crossroads where the two main forks in the road are sexuality and gender identity? Are there other forks in the road? 
Well, um, I, I think all of the forks unite, really. Um, we, like our community is one that is not just sexually diverse and gender diverse. It's also um, a community that's racially diverse. Um, it is a community um, that is uh, divided on class. You know, that, that all of these issues are also um, things that intersect. And present opportunities as that's well. It. That's it. Because of that diversity. Exactly. You know, like that they do indeed um, present opportunities. And if we really focus on LGBTIQ liberation and if our vision is a vision of every single LGBTIQ person being liberated, then we're going to be touching on so many issues for um, First Nations like LGBTIQ people for for. The sister girls from Tiwi Island, how can they be liberated without their land? And it, like, it is very interesting because I um, started my political journey in the late 70s and uh, I started out um, concerned with um, my oppression as a lesbian and diving in, like into that and asking all of those questions where does oppression come from, led me to feminism, led me to socialist feminism and led me to having an all-encompassing view of what it is that we're fighting for. We're chained to Alison Thorne from the Freedom Socialist Party. Alison, post-yes vote, is the LGBTI community at risk of stagnation and just becoming another economic unit defined and exploited by commercialism and capitalism? Oh, what a splendid question. You like that one? Um, to ask, I do like, I do like that question. Um, but my answer is that I... Like, I hope not. So do I. <laughs> because it's depressing if it's true, isn't it? It, it is. It's very depressing if it's true. But uh, the, the, like, the struggle for um, marriage equality, it's really something um, that mobilised um, a whole new generation. I, got, I would be so inspired when I'd go along to the rallies and just um, see so many people um, who were so much younger than me. And uh, that was fantastic and it was inspiring. So you're very optimistic about the future of queer activism, by I, the sounds of it. I, I am. I am. And that's a good thing. Because, like, I'm thinking that what was inspiring all those people out on the street um, fighting for for marriage equality, for so many people, it was so much more than the right to say, I do. It was uh, about no bourgeois politician like is going to tell me, you know, like what I can do with my life, you know, like that there was that real sense and like it very much became a defining battle between on the, the the one hand people out on the streets fighting for marriage equality and on the other hand the dinosaurs who it took 13 years kicking and screaming 
um, before we like even got that terrible marriage survey. And I mean, really, and they're still kicking. They might not be screaming as much, but they're still kicking they're behind s- the scenes, aren't they, with their religious freedom to discriminate? They, they are approach. indeed. And I think um, the Ruddock review that that's um, that's like a threat. One isn't of it? the things it is. It's a Trojan horse, um, and I think a the, Trojan horse for a, like a, a, a Trojan horse for the 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 right wing to to bring back um, discrimination in the guise of religious freedom. And because we, it is a right wing movement, isn't it? That look, there is there is a right wing movement out there, um, and the far right um, uses a whole lot of things um, to try and mobilise from law and order hysteria to Islamophobia, but they just as much um, use issues um, such as anyone who challenges the the gender binary, you know. That's a big issue for them, and that's why they were so, and still are, so anti-safe schools. Like, absolutely, absolutely. Um, And there are just so many issues for us to be fighting around, and there are... um, Small but dangerous, um, outright fascist and neo-Nazi groups um, who are out there in the community right here in Melbourne trying to build a mass movement and those very same groups um, have their allies that are organising in the parliament as well. And one of the things that we think is so very, very important is that we need to understand that Every reform that we win is only as good as how long we can actually hang on to it. And as somebody who has uh, studied um, quite a lot the whole issue of the far right and fascism, I um, I get... Um, I get overwhelmed almost when I think of what happened in Germany, the Weimar Republic. It had such a vibrant um, gay and lesbian community. It had bars. It had an extremely um, popular, widely distributed lesbian magazine called The Girlfriend. Um, It was an extremely um, well-developed homosexual community in Weimar, Germany. And that was a community um, that was crushed uh, by the growth of the far right. So this is something that we need to take uh, very seriously. And when we talk about reviving the spirit of Stonewall, what we're talking about is reviving that resistance and fight back. Your forum is 4pm, Saturday the 23rd of June. It's at the Solidarity Salon, which is at 580 Sydney Road. Uh, There's an optional dinner. There's cheap tickets. uh, There's the dinner straight after the forum. And if people want more information, they can go to radicalwomen.org for more details. And you've got a great list of speakers, including 3CR Sally Goldner from Out of the Pan. Oh, look, we're so thrilled to have um, Sally. We've got um, also um, Josh Mason, um, who coordinates... uh, the LGBTI 
LGBTQ punk blog. So that's going to be amazing. We're taking an internationalist perspective as well. We have um, Sarah Nina speaking and she is um, an expert on Timor-Leste and she's going to be looking at um, lesbian, bi and trans women's rights in Timor-Leste. And we've got Radical Women's very own um, Lisa Farrell and I'm chairing and I'm really looking forward to it. Wonderful. That's Saturday, the 23rd of June. Uh, in Brunswick, alrighty. Uh, Alison Thorne, thank you so much for joining us on your face. Uh, it's been great chatting to you and just uh, hearing your breadth and wealth of experience. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. It's 9 to 5. You're on In Your Face on 3CR. And here's Chicks on Speed with their track Coventry. Now I notice that you had disappeared. It's been two days, no connection. Pile of hardware making hits if the quality is high at the parties there's a place for you on the guest list there's a place for you in a somebody's eye
Perth band, I pretty there, wig out, two to five. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. I am out of here. A huge thank you to Alison Thorne and Nicholas for joining me in the studio. We'll be back next week for Radiothon. Uh, taking us out is Stevie Wonder with Contract on Love. Have an awesome weekend, everybody. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.